From KCRW, you're listening to Greater LA, the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Hey there, I'm Steve Chiotakis. 1992 was a watershed year in the history of Los Angeles. A video of four LAPD officers violently beating motorist Rodney King gripped the city and offered proof, visual proof, for what black and brown residents had long been saying about their interactions with the police. Then, as we all know, the four officers were acquitted by a jury in Simi Valley, which set off the largest uprising in the city in decades. These events left an indelible mark on L.A. and continue to shape its politics and its culture. One of the most prominent artistic reactions came from actress and playwright Anna DeVere Smith. Her 1993 play, Twilight, Los Angeles, 1992, transformed interviews with real people connected with the events into dramatic monologues, monologues that reveal people's varied perspectives. Justice denied Latasha Harlins is justice denied every American citizen. And the sentencing of Sunja Du was a $500 fine. Restitution to the funeral expenses. You can't bury a dog in Los Angeles for $500. Latasha's funeral cost $7,000. So $500 fine. We think it's more to the tune of $1 billion it cost this city April 20 the 9th. Because no matter what people say, the injustice done to Rodney King, it just coincides as there's a parallel between Rodney and Latasha. Well, now, 30 years later, Anna DeVere Smith is rehearsing a new run of Twilight, Los Angeles, 1992, at the Mark Taper Forum in downtown L.A. And I'm here with, right now, Anna DeVere Smith talking about it in Watts, where you guys are actually rehearsing this. Right. Yeah. yeah. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank it, you for doing this. It's nice to be here, too. I, I guess the first and obvious question is why? Why are you bringing this back now? Well, um, in terms of the now now, I got in touch with the director and one of the producers, Tyrone, when um, Tyree Nichols was killed. And I said, are you watching this? And Tyrone wrote back, looks like your play just cannot become a historical drama. And it was produced in New York at the Signature Theater two years ago. And it kept getting delayed. It was like a year late because of the murder of George Floyd. And so the why now is that the now is the now. It just keeps happening. And this keeps happening and it keeps being tracked. Uh, and, but also this is the 30th anniversary of when I performed Twilight at the Mark Taper Forum. And so, uh, they've invited me to bring this production, which has been reconceived for five actors. I did it as a one-person show for a long time here and on Broadway and on the road. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's why now. We've had you on the radio station before. Um, I know Warren Olney has interviewed you uh, about your involvement, right, and what, and what you saw through the lens sort of of the black community in L.A., after what happened with, with Rodney King, but also with the injustice of everything else that happened beyond that. And I guess, you know, the question is, why do you think this keeps happening? Why in America, why, you know, you, you said your, your friend said, you know, it's no longer a historical drama. This is, just keeps happening. Right. Why does it keep happening? Well, let me just go back and clarify one thing, which is I wouldn't say that this play was written through the lens of the black community because um, 
I uh, also interviewed people in the Latinx community and also many people in the Asian American community. And I had help doing that with folks who really showed me around those communities. And to me, in sort of my life as an artist, it was extraordinary having spent a lot of my life with a great interest in race as a black woman who grew up on the East Coast in Baltimore. This was the first time that I was really able to see race in a more complex way than just black and white. And so I think that's what's something that's um, important to point out about uh, Twilight Los Angeles and, um, you know, the people I talked to and how I got to know the city in all these different neighborhoods. I remember going to a Korean church one morning, like downstairs and this whole church, like in a basement with like almost like a full orchestra, it seemed to me. And I I thought back to when I was in high school and I thought that I wanted to like work in the UN or be a diplomat or learn about other countries. I thought, wow, I could learn about other countries just by being in this city. And so the process of interviewing 320 people, which I did in order to create Twilight Los Angeles, showed me the world. (laughs) The world, I would say the world of L.A. Well, I mean, really, it's probably one of the most diverse places on Earth. Right. But as to your question of why... um, You know, uh, I think that these things that happen with the police are about power. And I think what is really important for us to remember about the police is that the police are protecting property, our property. And so they, they do the work that allows us not to be very proximate to the people who are in the most precarious situation. Um... And I think that's a really important thing to point out. When Freddie Gray was killed in my hometown, Baltimore, and there was an uprising, and you know, I went there and, and did some interviews, I remember Barack Obama saying, and I guess it was controversial, but it was noteworthy to me, that if we think we're going to fix this problem by fixing the police, it's, it's short-sighted. It's a part of a larger problem. People use these words like systemic racism and so forth. I get worried about sort of academic fashion of how we talk about it, you know, but it's about power. It's about power. Why don't we, do you think, use that language? You know, I guess it's like the wordsmiths are the media and academics and activists. And when I came here to L.A., as a matter of fact, I couldn't just sit down with my tape recorder and say, uh, well, tell me what you saw during the riots, because there were people who thought it was a revolution and people who thought it was an uprising. And my favorite were the politicians who referred to it as the events in Los Angeles. There are a lot of events in Los Angeles, <laughs> some, of them, some of them nicer than others, right? So, I mean, how would you describe what happened in 92 after? I thought it was, I, one woman used a word that I didn't hear very much, it was a social explosion, and it was an uprising. It was an explosion. That's how I, that's how I witnessed it. You, you mentioned you talked to hundreds of people, right? More than 300. 320. 320. One of them was Daryl Gates, yeah. former police chief, LAPD. What was that like, talking to this guy? I spoke after to him three times, I recall. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, he was, it was very unusual because I've talked to other police chiefs in other cities. And as we know from when they show up on television, you know, they're the ones with the buttons and the, you know, compl- the women are completely quaffed. I don't know how they do that and end up, you know, with their nails. Almost militarized, though, right? But their nails and their whole, I mean, they're totally done. They're totally glammed up and all of this. And it's usually like that with, by the way, uh, a, a press person right there, you know. In this case, there was nobody like that. 
he, we stood around a Xerox machine. It was so strange because it was so informal. But I have to say that years later when I made a movie of this, he came actually to a filmed dinner party that we made at the home of Stanley Scheinbaum, who had been the police commissioner and who had fired him. And also years later, I was visiting Los Angeles and he came over to me in a restaurant. And he said, that was the biggest mistake I ever made in my life. It cost me my marriage, it cost me my career. He was unusually remorseful. Because I sort of experienced him as a little bit, I'd say, feral. You know, it's just very kind of almost like a trickster. Do you know? You didn't believe him? I wouldn't say I didn't believe him. But he was behaving as though there were no, no weight or no consequences in the interview. Daryl Gates, Maxine Waters, you spoke to, um, the congresswoman uh, who represents South L.A. You've talked to other people, too. Uh, Reginald Denny, yeah. who was removed from a truck at an intersection, right? Was it Florence and Normandy? Was it what? Was Florence, it Florence and Normandy, which it was. was considered yeah. the epicenter of the, uh, the riot, the uprising, the events in L.A. And um, he was actually just coming off the freeway and going through the neighborhood because he liked to buy those little pies from the Muslims, the black Muslims who would sell pies on the corner. That's what he was doing. He's just going to get a pie on the corner when his truck was stopped and he was uh, almost killed. Beaten. Stomped, beaten. And notably, the people who ran out of their houses when they saw it on television because there was a helicopter filming it, four black people, different black people didn't know each other, ran out of their houses and got him to the hospital, driving his truck, not even able to see because the windshield was so broken. One person standing on the running board, telling the other person where to drive, and a woman who was on her knees holding him in her arms. As she said, she saw it on TV and she thought, I am a Christian, I have to go outside and I have to help him. So it's always these stories are more, they're more than black and white. They're so complicated because they're about humans and how humans respond to catastrophe. You've been dealing with this play. You wrote it right after the uprising, riots, events of Los Angeles. It's heavy. This is all so heavy. And it keeps happening, as we say. You know, Minneapolis, Baltimore, Memphis, all these other places, Florida. How does that weigh on you in, in trying to, you know, just dealing with such a heavy subject as an actress, as a human being? Well, you know, that's a really modern question. Uh, well, that's I'm a, a really guy. modern question yeah. that is, um, you know, something actually that concerns me about my art form, uh, which is, you know, it's almost like, you know, we like to say we were the healing arts. We like to say that we're shedding light on the human experience, but there are all these reasons now where, um, let me just say that I feel my purpose is to carry the stories. And I've been in and out of communities of 
violence and despair in a variety of ways. I went to Rwanda 10 years after the genocide, just when the trials were starting, the Gachacha trials, where people had to come and ask forgiveness for the horrible things that they did. I talked to the killers and the people whose families have been killed. Went to South Africa in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. Um, you know, these plays in New York, my play Let Me Down Easy was, you know, I went to cancer hospitals. I talked to people who were dying. I've trained myself to hold these emotions because I think that's what my opportunity is as a human being, as a humanist, as a, and as an artist. And so I just, and I invite the artists who come around me and my students, I still teach at NYU, to think about resilience and to think about how we should be strong and we should be able to hold the stories. Of course, we have to take care of ourselves. When I performed this material, I didn't do anything but it. I swam every day. I did the show. I went home. I went to bed. I had to protect my voice. There are all these things that you do when you live this way. Self-care. But it's major. Yeah. But so do athletes, right? Yeah. So do the people in hospitals. So do so. I, I, I think that it should weigh, and I've trained to um, hold it, and I hold it with great respect for the people who have been broken by these things. Anna DeVere Smith, her show about the 1992 uprising. Social explosion. Social explosion. What riot. do you call it? What do you call it? A riot. A riot. You call it a riot. I call it a riot. Twilight, Los Angeles, 1992, running from March 8th to April 9th over at the Mark Taper Forum, downtown Los Angeles. Find out more information at our website. We'll have a link at kcrw.com slash GLA. Anna DeVere Smith, thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for coming down here to watch to talk to me. Thank you. Well, just ahead, in order to heal, you have to have a place for that. Down the street in Watts, there is such a place, a garden, and you're going to hear all about it on the other side of this. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Onward now with Greater LA from KCRW. I'm Steve Chiotakis. A garden can be many things. Maybe it's where you cultivate a hobby. Get some exercise, grow things that you'll eat or win prizes with at a county fair. It can also be a place where you can heal from trauma. Those kinds of gardens can offer a lot of help. You know, my mother used to say, always look for the helpers. A anybody who is coming into a place where there's a tragedy. Oh, baby, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Oya Shirelles started the Survivor's Healing Garden in Watts, specifically for folks whose lives have been affected by crime, people who have been assaulted, robbed, shot, or lost a loved one in an act of violence. She's project director at the Reverence Project in Watts, which provides services and support 
to survivors of crime. And Oya is with us right now. Welcome to you. Thanks so much for having us. It's just such an honor to be able to have this conversation as a survivor, talk about healing and why it's important to the world. Tell us about the work that you do. Why a garden? Well, the Reverence Project provides support for victims and survivors of crime that self-identified as such. Um, We also provide public safety strategies that center the public's voice. We might call it community-based public safety strategies. And it's always been in our vision to bring healing spaces to the world, and in particular to Watts, because there's just not enough of them. The the land itself used to be a junkyard, right? I mean, it sounds like the land needed some healing too. No, absolutely. The thing about it is that the Reverence Project is actually an organization that was set up to honor my brother who was murdered in 2004. I'm so sorry. And so one thing that we have discovered is that hurt people hurt people, but also that healed people heal people. And we know that just 15 minutes in nature can reduce the effects of PTSD and anxiety and depression. And we also have discovered that the built environment, their environment around us, also has a, a serious effect on cycles of violence or cycles of healing. What is in your garden? What kind of, what kind of things are in your garden that, that people can, can draw from and, and, and heal from? So actually we have been planting a lot of California natives, which is really important. We have been learning about how California natives actually can rehab the soil. It can reduce like the heat map and like places like Watts, the heat factor is much higher, right, than other places around Los Angeles. And that heat factor, it produces not only like actual fires in the environment that don't need to start, but also it raises tempers. And so you have a lot more incidents of violence in art in communities like ours. That's a fact. When people are hot or they're warm, they, they, there is more violence. Um, and there have been studies to talk about that, especially crime as it goes up in the summertime all around the country. Watts in particular, other places across, all across greater LA for that matter, you know, have been paved over. And so when you talk about this heat, you're talking about the concrete that sort of absorbs the heat. It's a heat island. Um, it's actually a, a, a thing, right? Because all that concrete absorbs the heat. Exactly. One of the things that we wanted to do is to provide soft space, not just physically, but also mentally, emotionally. When we as advocates for survivors are supporting somebody through a tragedy, it's really just kind of a knee-jerk reaction for folks to harden But when they have support, they can allow themselves to feel the pain and feel the grief. And so survivors come to the garden and they can actually create this kind of living memorial or a living altar 
for their loved ones, and also for their own healing. You use the word survivor, and I've heard you use it quite a few times just in the course of this conversation. Um, there are survivors. We also hear the word victim, but there's a difference between the two, right? Talk about those differences between being a victim and being a survivor. In our community in Watts, we often use this acronym for Watts. We are taught to survive mm. because of the historical violence that this place has been known for, but also the empowerment that it also stands for. And when we take away that term victim, victims are those who do not carry on, right? But survivors do carry on. They get empowered, they get healed. And so we want to continuously uplift that journey. Do you think there's a difference between victim and survivor in that victims perhaps can feel angry? And, and, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with feeling angry about being a victim of crime, right? Or having something happen to you that's, you know, at the, at the hands of another person. But that anger is sort of manifested into other things going forward, right? And, and healing can't start until the anger ends. That's a really beautiful way to put it. When we talk about, like, the cycles of violence, victim denotes the hurt, right? And the unaddressed trauma, the unhealed trauma. Survivor points to the beginning stages, at least, of that healing. Survivor means that you have, at the very least, started towards healing, started to address that trauma, started to address that grief, even if there's anger there. Your dad, um, Akila, right? Akila Shirelles? Yes. He started the, the Reverence Project more than 15 years ago. You mentioned your brother who lost his life, right? Because of violence. You're a survivor too. Your dad is a survivor. How did that loss in your life and, and the journey through that inform the, the work that you're doing right now? My father, Akila Shirelles, he was, he was actually instrumental in putting together the peace treaty between the Bloods and the Crips here in Watts. And so when my brother was murdered... And let me tell you about my brother. His name, Terrell Shirelles. He was a life of the party type of guy. Mm. Um, he loved to dance. He was a theater arts major. Uh, he was actually attending Humboldt State University. He came home during winter break and he was gunned down at a party. That really shook my dad. It shook our family. Of course. But... It gave my father the opportunity to also walk his talk because there was definitely the push for revenge. But my brother's legacy was not going to be revenge because my father made sure of that. Where is your brother in the healing garden? I feel him throughout the work, throughout the garden. Here at TRP, if you, if you come and visit us, you'll come into the office and you'll see a picture of him on the wall. 
he always had a smile on everybody's faces. So that's what we want to bring into the garden. Thank you so much for all that you do and, and for putting a smile on our faces too. Uh, talking about the Healing Garden, Oya Shirelles, project director over at the Reverence Project in Watson, also hosts the podcast Survivors Heal on iHeart Podcasts. Oya, thank you so much for, for everything that you're doing. Thanks, Steve. Ooh, what a show. That's all we have time for today. Tomorrow, the race of the corgis in the San Gabriel Valley. We're going to lighten it up a little bit. Will the doggies take to the track or will they stop and play? You're going to have to find out tomorrow on GLA. Have a story idea? Have some thoughts to share, perhaps? Do those things at the website, kcrw.com slash GLA. And, of course, get the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for KCRW Greater LA. Juliana Mayo, Nihar Patel, Phil Richards, Katie Gilchrist, Sonia Geis, Nick Lemponi, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Michael Stark, and Christian Bordall all had hands. On the episode this evening, I'm Steve Chitakis. Thank you for your ears and attention. Have a great night.